This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Colorado would dump presidential caucuses in favor of primaries if a measure passes on this year's ballot. Prop 107 would also open those primaries to unaffiliated voters, meaning they'd be able to pick a presidential candidate even though they don't belong to a party. This would bestow new power on more than a million Coloradans. There's a companion measure on the ballot that we'll debate today as well with spokesmen for Let Colorado Vote. These are the supporters, Curtis Hubbard, and from the opposition, former Republican state senator Ted Harvey of Highlands Ranch. Gentlemen, welcome to the program. Thanks for having us. Good morning. Thanks for having us. Colorado had presidential primaries before in 92, 96, and 2000, scrapped them in favor of caucuses. Curtis, why should Colorado go back to this? Well, I think one of the critical differences is that in those primaries, unaffiliated voters weren't participating. So that's number one. Number two, all you have to do is think back to March 1st of this year. If you were a Democrat, you were greeted at your caucus by lines out the door, long waits, disorganization. If you were a Republican, you did not have any sort of a presidential preference poll. And if you were one of the one million unaffiliated voters in Colorado, you were locked out altogether. When you add it all up, just 5%, that's one in 20 active voters in Colorado participated in the nomination process for the highest office in the land. We think that participation is a better outcome and that if Colorado is participating early in the process, we'll have great influence on the national discussion. Prop 107 brings back presidential primaries, as we said, opens them up to independents. This other proposition, 108, opens down-ballot primaries to unaffiliated voters. Practically, how would an unaffiliated voter participate in a primary? And the primaries would be mail-in, right? Correct. So they would be treated the same way that Republicans and Democrats currently are treated, which means they would be mailed a ballot. That ballot would have, under our measure, uh, both parties' candidates listed and simple instructions to vote in one but not both parties' primaries, doing so could invalidate your vote. They would then pick one party's primary to participate in, return their ballot just like uh, any other voter, and have their say in Colorado's primary elections, which oftentimes are the elections where it really matters. Whether it's Senator Harvey's district or a district like uh, where I live in Boulder, that's when you're really deciding on who's going to serve the citizens of that district. Right. So to be clear, between the two propositions, you're not talking just about the presidential election, but down-ballot races as well. And so the these unaffiliated voters would be delivered a ballot that had candidates from both parties. Potential for some confusion there? Wouldn't the ballot be invalidated if you vote for both parties? Well, I don't know about accidentally, but sort of unwittingly. Yeah, it could be. We think Colorado voters are extremely smart. Already, we ask them to use a blue or a black pen. We ask them to fill in a box. We ask them to sign the back of an envelope, to return the ballot to a privacy sleeve, to return it by 7 p.m. on a Tuesday. So we think when we ask them all of that, that they're also smart enough to be able to read that they can vote in one party's primary, but not both. And a critical thing here, Ryan, is Colorado leads the nation in growth of unaffiliated voters. More than a million Colorado voters, more than 50 percent of voters under age 40, it's critical that we get them involved in our election process so that we have candidates who are more responsive to the views of the Colorado electorate. Senator Harvey, I want to understand the nature of your opposition. Is it to primaries? Is it to the fact that these would be primaries open to unaffiliated voters? Um, predominantly that it's open to unaffiliated voters. These are 
private entities, these political parties that are choosing their nominees, they're private entities, and we are saying that people who are not a part of this private entity should be allowed to choose the leaders um, of these parties. It's like saying um, the Mormon church will get to choose who is going to be the pope or who allowing Bill Belichick to decide who's going to be the quarterback for the Denver Broncos. A a religious and a sports metaphor. (laughs) Okay. And I, I, I just fundamentally believe that that's inappropriate. These, the Republican Party is the Republican Party. They should be able to decide who is going to be their leader. And same with a Democrat Party. Um, I'm not a, I'm not opposed to a primary. I actually supported the the effort um, that was going before the legislature last year to have a presidential primary because I believe, like Curtis said, that we want to have Colorado play a more important role in the primary process. And right now, with the way we do the caucus system for choosing our candidate um, who we're going to support from Colorado, it sometimes is tough to do. If you look at the um, preference polls that we did at our caucuses over the last several years, um, when we had Romney win one time, and by the time we got to the convention, actually the very next day, he dropped out of the race. Um, And you saw the same with other races where the person who won the straw poll at the Republican caucuses wasn't in the race. I think that was Santorum at one point. But let's let's go back to the, the sort of nugget of your opposition here, which is that you don't think unaffiliated voters ought to participate in what is a private function. Uh, in your estimation. And I suppose you would say what to an unaffiliated voter who wants to participate? It's not that they don't have any Register means. with one of the parties. Register that, with that, that, Currently, the way the process is, is if an unaffiliated wants to participate in one of the party caucuses um, or primaries, they can affiliate at the day of the election. What this is saying is we are going to require the counties and the state to pay for ballots going to all unaffiliated voters with a ballot for each party. And then at that time, the unaffiliated voter, if they want to participate, can participate in the primary. And most likely, most unaffiliated voters, history has shown that most unaffiliated voters don't even want to participate in the primary ballot uh, election. But we are going to ask the taxpayer to on the cost of sending that ballot to every single unaffiliated voter, whether they want to vote or not. Is that true? What do you base that on? The idea that a lot of unaffiliated voters don't want to participate? Because they they haven't. They haven't they haven't well, changed they haven't their, they haven't changed the their system. Sure, they can. They can change their party registration and then immediately so, go back. And yeah. there's no history. There's no evidence to the fact that you have a huge mass of unaffiliated voters switching to their party registration Curtis, right of, before the election. Lots of points to have you address here. Sure. First of all, what do you understand the desire to be among unaffiliated so voters? So the, the desire among unaffiliated voters is to participate. Colorado has among How do you the know highest that? participation in general elections in the country. And, and but, if, if they want to participate, why don't more of them because register? Because you're asking them to be something that they're not. You're asking them to declare to be something that they're not. And fundamentally, Senator, what this is about is – This is a taxpayer-financed election, and our view is that if you're asking taxpayers to finance your private party function, then they should have a say in that process without being asked to join a party that they don't believe uh, that they're a part of, but that they should have a say. What you're saying, Curtis, is yes, 
political parties are semi-private organizations, but they connect to something that's very public and, and civic. Absolutely. And uh, Proposition 108 gives the parties an opportunity to opt out if they choose to continue to keep a million unaffiliated voters from participating in elections that they pay for. They can instead nominate their can candidates through a private process. And I think what's important here is we haven't been treating unaffiliated voters in Colorado the same way we've been treating Democrats and Republicans. They're not mailed primary ballots. They're forced to take additional steps that other voters are not required to take in order to participate. And fundamentally, we believe that all voters should be given the opportunity to participate in taxpayer-financed elections. But if unaffiliated voters, Curtis Hubbard, don't feel uh, a simpatico with a, p a particular party, mm -hmm. okay, wouldn't it be possible that they get that ballot and their goal is to choose the weakest candidates in a party that they oppose. So let's be clear. An unaffiliated voter doesn't mean one who doesn't have partisan feelings. They may lean left or right. Yeah, but so we've studied they, this issue very metal, closely, Ryan. Yeah. And it's important to note that primaries that are open to unaffiliated voters take place in the majority of states. So Colorado's in the minority in closing its elections to unaffiliated voters. And there's just no data to support that argument. It's something that people throw out there as a red herring that, oh, this, this is a possibility. But people take the right to participate, the right to vote very seriously. And our view is that this is a critical phase of the election process. And right now it's closed to the largest group of voters in the state. We believe by opening it to those voters that will have better candidates and better outcomes. So you think that sabotage argument is a red herring? Correct. And what do you think, Ted Harvey? We are not denying unaffiliated voters the ability to vote. They can register to vote in either party that they want to right now on Election Day. That is not denying unaffiliated voters the ability to vote. What we are saying is these are private entities and these private entities should have the ability to um, choose their leaders without having undue influence from other people that aren't part of that organization. That, that, that makes sense to me. And why would we have the taxpayers pay for that. Um, Curtis just said that the taxpayers are already paying for it. Well, the taxpayers aren't paying for a caucus. The, the caucus is already choosing the candidates in many of these situations like that. And we've seen the results of like uh, that. that type of system. And I'm sorry, I didn't interrupt. You went on for a good five minutes and I didn't interrupt you at all. Um, and why would we want to have taxpayer dollars sending ballots to hundreds of thousands of people that don't want to participate in the process? If they wanted to participate in the process, they would right now. And we are now asking the taxpayers through this initiative to get to, to pay for ballots going to people who don't want to participate. And but it seems like a expense that the taxpayers shouldn't have to fund. Is, is Senator Harvey, isn't the assumption with, with voting that expanding the franchise is in the best interest? In other words, to say to send a, a bunch of ballots to people who don't want them, uh, don't you want to assume that people are, in, are, are interested in voting? If they were interested in voting, they would vote. They would register on the same day. You can go and register to vote today. If they were so interested in doing it, they would do it. And to the point that we heard from Curtis Hubbard, which is uh, that's a violation of their identity, of how they see themselves as a voter. Well, that's fine. It's a violation of my identity that I'm a Republican choosing my leaders and I'm having people that aren't a part of my identity choosing who the leader would be. That's that's fundamental to the, the democratic process in the United States, that people that are members of certain parties have the ability to choose their leadership. We are debating Props 107-108 in Colorado on this year's ballot. You're listening to Colorado Matters, and these measures have to do with uh, 
how people vote and who can vote, uh, largely in primaries in Colorado. Uh, I want to say that the backers of Let Colorado Vote, that's the, the group that supports this, are, there are a lot of businesses. DeVita Healthcare, for instance, that's the dialysis company. They've given around half a million dollars. Attorney Frank Azar, First National Bank. Curtis, why are businesses uh, giving chunks of change here? Because they understand what's important for the health of our democracy, and that's having people involved in the process. They've seen too many issues in recent years where there's widespread agreement on how Colorado can solve a problem or that Colorado must address an issue, whether that's construction defect reform, whether that's the hospital provider fee moving it into an enterprise. And this is a system that will reward lawmakers for pursuing solutions as opposed to what we often hear in the business community is a lawmaker saying, gee, I'd love to support you, but I might get primaried. Rather than worrying about all of the most extreme partisans on the right or the left, they're worried about the larger electorate. And I want to address one... So you think that this would have an effect of moving the politics in Colorado to the center? It would certainly make them responsive to more voters. And our view is that when you're making elected officials responsible to a larger share of the electorate, you're going to get better outcomes. And think about the participation in our current processes. Just one in 20 voters participated in the caucuses. Just one in five voters participates in the primary. So the senator says, that this is about if you want to participate, you do. Well, under his logic, because only one in five partisans participates in the primary, we should just form a committee, let them, it'll be a representative sample, and we could just let them make the decisions on who we elect. I think, and I think many majority of Coloradans think, that we should involve people in the electoral process. Colorado has made decisions to mail ballots to all voters. They've made decisions to open polling places two weeks before elections. And we think that they should make the decision to involve unaffiliated voters in these two critical phases of the process. Senator Harvey addressed this idea that this might have a a centering effect in some regards in politics. Well, I don't, I don't think that there's any evidence of that. Again, you are, you are going to have people that are getting ballots that don't want to participate in the primary process to begin with. And we but are, won't you be getting we are some a representative. We, they they can now. They, they can go and they can change their voter registration on day one. Um, we have same-day voter registration, and they're not taking advantage of it and changing over in mass. We are a representative form of government. We have people that are getting elected from the people that are participating in the process, going to the caucuses, going to their primaries, and representing the people that elected them. Simply because people don't participate in the process of of choosing those candidates does not mean that the taxpayers of the state of Colorado should spend ballots to all of those hundreds of thousands of people that don't want to participate in the process. Let's talk about expense, because this is uh, an interesting point. Right now, under the caucus system for uh, presidential selection, the parties absorb that cost. What you've been saying, Senator Harvey, is that the the state and counties absorb the cost of a mail-in primary. And you don't think that's that's right in this case, given that unaffiliated voters can vote. Well, I, I think that if we go to a presidential primary and that we are sending ballots to Republicans for the Republican primary, Democrats for the Democrat primary, that expense is not nearly as expensive as doing an open primary where we're sending ballots with um, f- f- to all unaffiliated voters. But then you, you also have to realize that you're sending not only the presidential ballots on one ballot, one, one of the initiatives that we have, but one then on seven, the other yeah. initiative, you're sending ballots to 
unaffiliated with multiple candidates on there. You will have the U.S. Senate candidates. You have congressional candidates. You have state legislative candidates. And I believe you will have a huge number of spoiled ballots. And you will have people getting ballots that don't want to vote in those primaries. And so between the confusion, between the expense, why are we doing – what's the upside to it? I think that the upside – the the cost is is far exceeds the upside of doing it. But again, you would support the notion of a primary, just one not open to unaffiliated voters for uh, the presidential primary, for the not presidential. not for yeah. all of the other races yeah. that are out there. Because the only justification for doing it for the presidential primary is to make Colorado more relevant in the national election of the president of the United States. Curtis, uh, briefly, is this worth the expense? Uh, absolutely, and we think when voters approve these measures in November, they will have spoken loud and clear that they value participation, that they want to vote, that they want to see people participating in our process without having to declare to be something that they're not, that they think that there's a better way than a caucus system that is only participated in by 5% uh, of active voters in the state, and that we involve the largest segment of the population of the electorate in elections that they pay for. Curtis Hubbard, spokesman for Let Colorado Vote, which is behind Props 107 and 108 on this year's ballot. They would create open primaries here. Former State Senator Ted Harvey, a Republican from Highlands Ranch, opposes those measures. We've also debated a ballot measure to raise the state's minimum wage. You can hear that at CPRnews.org. And tomorrow, the debate to allow for medically assisted death in Colorado. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Now to a ballot question specific to Metro Denver. CPR arts reporter Corey Jones explained to my colleague Joanne Allen that Metro voters will decide whether to renew a cultural tax. Corey, we're talking about the Scientific and Cultural Facilities District, or SCFD. You've spoken with a lot of people about this. What have you heard? Yeah, I went out to a few museums recently with CPR News producer Stephanie Wolf, and we asked people, what do you know about this cultural tax district? My name is Janelle Woods, and I live in Aurora, Colorado. I have no clue. Have you ever heard of it? No. How about you? I'm sorry, no. My name is Kevin Best, and I live in Aurora, Colorado. My name is Kristen Gearhart, and I live in Denver, Colorado. It's like the science and the SFCD or SF whatever. SCFD? Yes, SCFD that uh, pays for stuff at the museums, the various museums and free days in the zoo. So, uh, My name is Jason Richard Evans. I live in Englewood, Colorado. So even right in here we see this acronym SCFD. Do you know what that stands for? What does that mean to you? I don't know what it stands for. Um, no, I have never heard of that before. Good morning. My name is James. I'm from Denver. I voted for it. I'm happy it passed. Um, I'm glad to see that Denver believes in supporting the arts and other cultural uh, institutions. And that's one of the reasons why I live here. And I'm proud to be a Denver citizen. That's James Johnson of Denver. And he was actually one of the few people we talked to who was aware of SCFD and that this cultural tax is on the November ballot. As you heard, uh, plenty of people didn't know anything about it. And yet, if you live in this district, you help pay for it. Well, that's interesting. So what do people need to know about this? Let's start with the actual district. This covers seven counties in the Denver area from Douglas up to Boulder. And the district gets money from a sales and use tax. It amounts to about one penny for every $10 you spend. Last year, it generated more than $54 million. 
Where did that money go? It went to 272 nonprofits. Some are big, like the Denver Museum of Nature and Science. Others are mid-sized, like the Arvada Center. And the rest are small, like theaters and dance companies. And that's actually how these groups get divided into three tiers, uh, based basically on size and budget. Now, we're here to inform voters. What role do they play in all of this? Well, voters first approved this cultural tax back in 1988. I'm told that one selling point back then was the fact that it wasn't permanent. So since then, voters have approved two extensions by wide margins. Now they'll decide whether to renew it again this fall. And what happens if they do renew SCFD? First, the tax gets extended through 2030. The campaign says it prefers having people vote on SCFD during presidential election years when, as we know, voter turnout is higher. But this year's ballot issue also includes a big change, and that is how this money gets split up among the three tiers of nonprofits. Well, some arts leaders have disagreed about how much money goes to the different organizations. Why is there disagreement? Yeah, you got it, Joanne. So again, there are three tiers. Uh, Stick with me here. The five biggest organizations are on top. They get the most money. Think the Denver Art Museum. Next, you have 28 mid-sized organizations like the Colorado Symphony and the Butterfly Pavilion. And then about 240 small groups make up tier three. So this group is the largest, and yet it splits the smallest pot of money, and there's been a push to get them more. That's what this change does. It gives a bit more money to small and mid-sized organizations, but some have said it still isn't enough. In response, SCFD does plan to give out grants for small organizations that target underserved communities. So what will happen if voters say no to the cultural tax this fall? Looking ahead, the SCFD expires in 2018. That means if voters don't renew the sales tax, we could see it on the ballot again next year. If it fails to pass again, SCFD Executive Director Peg Long says they'd have to wind down by July of 2018. It'll be extremely disappointing and probably devastating to a lot of organizations. So there are millions of dollars in annual arts funding at stake. In the meantime, we have a guide to SCFD online, and also there's a story about what all this has to do with a polar bear. That's at cprnews.org. CPR's Corey Jones talking with Joanne Allen about a question before voters in Metro Denver, whether to reauthorize a tax that benefits cultural institutions. And just to note that CPR and other public media outlets do not get SCFD funding. You can see a full list of the organizations that do at CPRnews.org. My interview with Denver's new pedestrian planner drew feedback and questions from listeners. And let's hear them now in loud and clear. During my conversation with David Pulsifer, he mentioned giving pedestrians more time to cross at certain intersections. William Oswald of Denver emailed, While I walk and understand the convenience of not having to wait, I was sad not to hear a discussion of impacts to traffic and possible increased local pollution caused by idling cars. Fuel waste and pollution are important to me, and I think walkers may find the idling vehicles will negatively impact their experience more than waiting at a light cycle. We got back in touch with Pulsifer for his reaction. The idea is that if we make the pedestrian environment better and more convenient and more pleasurable, that less people will be actually in their car, and that will decrease uh, carbon emissions. Also, uh, this isn't... um, 
an improvement where we install it at every single intersection. And in many instances, it's a matter of seconds with which a signal will be altered to impact a pedestrian. So without having done exhaustive uh, environmental research, I think the idling impacts in this case are minimal. We also heard from Jill Locantore, policy director at Walk Denver. It's a pedestrian advocacy group. She writes, thank you very much for the interview with David Pulsifer and for shining a spotlight on the important issue of walkability in Denver. I was disappointed, however, when Ryan asked several questions that pitted the interests of drivers against pedestrians. That is not a helpful way to frame the issue. She goes on to write, everyone is a pedestrian at some point in their day. Streets are public spaces that we all share, regardless of how we're traveling. No one should have to die just to try to get around the city. If you think I ought to walk back from something, or if you have a story idea we should run and not walk to, email us, news at cpr.org. You can also tweet us at Colorado Matters or hit us up on Facebook, CPR News. Woke up this morning, I'm feeling around to my shoes. You know that that I must have had them. Whoa, walking blues. Woke up this morning, people. When we come back, meet the new host of A Prairie Home Companion. He does a mean impression of Garrison Keeler. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Regular listeners of public radio will recognize this next voice. Well, it's been a quiet week in Lake Wobegon, Minnesota, my hometown. Out on the edge of the prairie. Garrison Keeler hosted a Prairie Home Companion for decades, and since its first broadcast in 1974, it's become a public radio mainstay. Keeler delivered his final Lake Wobegon monologue in July. The new host, mandolin virtuoso Chris Thiele, takes over officially October 15th. He has guest hosted in the past. Feely is well-known to Colorado audiences. He's been a fixture at the Telluride Bluegrass Festival, appearing solo and with his bands, Nickel Creek and Punch Brothers. Chris Thiele, welcome back to Colorado Matters. Ah, thanks so much for having me, Right. I read it was uh, actually Garrison Keillor's idea for you to take over as host. Did, did he call you up one day and say, I, I, I have a job for you? He did. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, he called He called me. His, his, his name came up on caller ID. And I was in the middle of uh, – I was shedding some death-defying lick or, or other that Edgar Meyer had written for me to play um, on, on a tour bus. We were on tour together, Edgar and me. And his his name came up on caller ID. I'm like right in the middle of this passage. I'll, I'll let it go to voicemail. But even right then, it didn't feel to me like this was going to be him asking me to come on the show like next week. He would occasionally call personally if it was short notice on a guest appearance possibility. And I let it go to voicemail and check the voicemail and it's Garrison saying, um, Chris, uh, call me back uh, if something I think might be of interest. Uh, or maybe it won't. I don't know. Um, Call, just call me back. We'll talk. Uh, and so, <laughs> I'm going, whoa, huh? Uh, Garrison doesn't sound like that's. I, I, I actually it's think hard for someone. I think it's, it's a mean Garrison Keeler. I think I'm really impressed. <laughs> thank, thank you, Ryan. You're very kind. People are so nice in Colorado. Roundly, <laughs> uh, very nice. It's hard for someone whose voice is pitched a full octave higher to, to really get in there on a Garrison Keeler impersonation. But anyway, I, I, I call him back, and he outlines this plan that we're now in the middle of. And uh, I sat there on our tour bus sort of dumbstruck 
but also nodding, just nodding my head as if this was somehow, you know, even as I'm, I'm sort of what I'm also, yeah, hmm. yeah, of course, great. I'll become, <laughs> I'll become the next host of a Prairie Home Companion, like we talked about. You mentioned Edgar Meyer. That's the bassist that you collaborated yes. with. And uh, this plan, this plan, a succession plan, if you will, uh, from one host to the other. It, are you going to keep the name A Prairie Home Companion? Oh, yes, yes. A Prairie Home Companion will still be the name, despite the fact that I'll probably be discussing matters of the prairie rather less than Garrison has. Although, you know, I, growing up in Southern California, I never felt like he wasn't speaking to me. And ostensibly, Southern California life is is different from that of, of uh, Midwestern life. Right. News from West so, Covina sounds a little different. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It's a different. There's less ice fishing. Um, <laughs> but um, but I, I, I honestly feel that the regionalism on the show has 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 never, you know, it was never something that that I felt excluded from. Um, you know, I don't feel the need to. To put on Midwestern airs, you know, I won't stand up there on on the stage at the Fitzgerald and and tell you stories about like Wobegon. It'll be that'll be different. But the show itself, the format of the show, will stay pretty much exactly the same. I'm such a fan. I I feel like we as people living in the 21st century need it now more than ever. This this two hours on Saturday when we we have the opportunity to sort of hold the cares of the week out for ins- inspection and even. In celebration. Let me just say that Fitzgerald is the Fitzgerald Theater where the show has been based for a long time in St. Paul. And when you say the format will be the same, that is to say it's going to be still a very musical two hours and and what theatrical as well, because I think of things like Guy Noir, Private Eye and Dusty and Lefty, the luckless cowboys. Yes, exactly. Those sorts of things. Now, Guy Noir specifically and Dusty and Lefty um, will not be making... An appearance sans Garrison, just again, because those are those are Garrison's thing, just like Lake Wobegon. But the show is one of these pieces of art that that I don't think need the creator's direct involvement to live vibrantly on. And um, looking forward to testing that theory. I'm very confident that this is this is going to be a satisfying two hours of radio. Give us a preview of something you'll bring to the show. Well, Garrison is a massive music fan. So am I. Uh, I've eaten, slept, and breathed it these 35 years. But, you know, I, I, I'm interested in the width and breadth of what I consider to be great music being made today. And, and I feel like all of that is on the table for, for Prairie Home Companion. So while, for instance, acoustic uh, leaning roots music will still have a, a very happy home, we'll be casting a, a wider neck, I think, texturally speaking. Who's your dream guest? Dream guest. Oh, let's see. Well, we had a we 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 just had a very near miss with Radiohead. I can't even tell you how <gasps> close it was. Oh no, to I want to hear Radiohead uh, on a there, Prairie Home. I know. Me too. Let me tell you, and we oh. were so close. Ted, I can talk. See, I can talk about that because it just <laughs> it, it didn't just happen. didn't happen. <laughs> um, but boy, they were in. They were. I, I I have to say, they were into it, which I couldn't believe. I was so excited. They were into it. We couldn't make the logistics work out. Last second, we got to it too, just too late in the game to make it work out. But that they are still a dream guest for me. Um, so let's see. I boy, I adore the work of Kendrick Lamar. You know, you know who would be fun to have on the show is Louis C.K. Don't you think? 
The comedian. The edgy comedian. Yeah, I think mm-hmm. I think he would be good. There's I, so oh, there's so much stuff I wish I could talk about right now <laughs> that is going to happen that is really fun. So stay tuned, as they say in the biz. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we are speaking with Chris Thiele, who is the incoming host of the public radio fixture, A Prairie Home Companion. And Thiele is something of a fixture himself on the Colorado music scene, having performed in the state many times and participated in music festivals here as well. You announced the new house band for A Prairie Home in August. This includes two of your bandmates from Punch Brothers, as well as fiddler Brittany Haas and drummer Ted Poor, who has performed with singer-songwriter Andrew Bird. Uh, you also announced some new duet partners. Are you nervous about filling these shoes? No, no, I'm not. Um, the reason being that no one, no one could fill Garrison Keillor's shoes. This is not, you know, he he is one of a kind, truly one of a kind. There will never be another Garrison Keillor. So, so that's not the gig. Yeah. The gig is is making sure that the show lives on again beyond his direct involvement. And the nerves that I have are that we would um, really, as a fan of the show, will we lose the show? I don't want to lose the show. I I don't feel that I will personally lose us the show. I don't. I, I think I can. I can do this. I love putting on a show. That's that's my thing. It's been my thing since I was seven. Mm. And actually, the way that I deliver a show, um, the way that I make an attempt to connect with with whatever audience is present, is um, is heavily influenced by Garrison. Seeing as I mean, honestly, every week growing up, we listen to the show. In the first year, you'll be doing thirteen episodes. The first season, I guess. Uh, Garrison yeah. has, has typically done twenty six, so it's a bit of a, a ramping up and. I understand some stations in the public radio system are, are giving the show a one-year grace period to see how listenership does. <laughs> so, yes. Um, I want to play an excerpt from an interview that you did with a really big name that came on the show when you were guest hosting. Oh, excellent. I think I know what you're about to do. Paul Simon is here. Right here at the Fitzgerald Theater, ladies and gentlemen. Paul, this is really fun, man. Yeah, for, for you it is. Yes. Wow, it was really awkward because he was just kind of not playing ball at the beginning there. Uh, yeah, he was, uh, <laughs> he was giving me a little bit of a hard time. What have you learned from guest hosting the program? And maybe specifically, what did that interview teach you? Um. That is the beauty of live radio is that that kind of thing, you know, there's no uh, – some editor somewhere would have just taken that right out and we wouldn't have, have been able to share that that moment like that that kind of odd you – know, that sensation of, oh, oh my gosh, is this, is this OK? Is it, <laughs> it seems OK. OK, great. Now, now there's music and wow, what a ride. I think that that really is the beauty of live radio. We can't script this stuff. How are you going to handle the travel? Because you live in Portland, Oregon, and the show is going to continue to be based at at this Fitzgerald Theater in downtown St. Paul, Minnesota. Yeah, I'll be I'll be hitting the hitting the airport rather frequently for the time being. My my wife is on a television show that shoots in Portland, Oregon. So so here I am, and we'll be here certainly for the duration of the show. After after that, um, we may move back to New York City. I I don't know. 
your wife is Claire Coffee, and and she's on a program called Grim. Is there a, a kind of department or regular feature that you're working on that you could tell us about? So one thing that we're going to do, um, that I'm really excited about, is and see here if I say it, we can't chicken out. <laughs> uh, we're going to do a live request on the show. Basically, you'll be encouraged as listeners to to hop on the internet at some point and recommend a song that you'd like to hear us do. It could be anything, but there there are two rules, one of which is that two musicians on the show have to have at least heard the song before. And then the other rule is that no one participating in the live request can have performed the song before. Hmm. So um, we look to court a little bit of chaos and and <laughs> – you know, if we can, if we can rope whatever spoken word guest happens to be on the show that week, there'll always be one. There'll be two musical guests and, and a spoken word guest. Spoken word guest being, you know, a comedian or actor, yeah. storyteller, novelist, poet, something along those lines. But to get them in on the whole process, I suspect, will be enjoyable for everyone. But that's that's a little segment we're working on. We have new serialized, quote unquote, dramas in the works. Some new product. Lines, we have potentially hired a new in-house critic who is actually not real, but uh, but a character, a new in-house critic from a failed wine magazine, or perhaps he, he, <laughs> he himself was actually too pretentious, too snobby for the wine publication that had hired him previously. But we, <laughs> we, we feel sorry for him and want to give him a chance to review, you know, regular – Household products, shaving <laughs> creams, perhaps snow tires, things, things of that nature. Um, and uh, I, he hasn't seemed to be able to dial back on his pretentious, um, <laughs> you know, wine wine review style uh, lingo. Right. This baby wipe has hints of chocolate and uh, no, notes of and, yes, exactly. <laughs> and I'll, I'll say that yes. you're you're keeping the longtime sound effects expert that's on the show. Oh yeah. What what, what would we do without Fred? And, you know, some of the sponsors may may remain the same. They, we've had their loyal support for so long. You know, it would be a shame to, shame to lose them. Certainly powder milk biscuits, powder milk biscuits are, right. are ever tasty, ever tasty and, um, and expeditious, naturally. One of my favorite onion headlines of all time uh, was two dozen more bodies found in Lake Wobegon. Have you, have you seen that? <laughs> no. Yeah. No, but I like it. I mean, it's obviously playing with this really... I don't know, tame view of Lake Wobegon. It says, well, local residents insist it has been a quiet week in their hometown out on the edge of the prairie. State police officials descended on the small community Tuesday when another 24 corpses surfaced along its placid waterfront. I think I bring this up as a way of asking about edge. Does the show need more edge? Hmm. I don't know if it needs more edge. Um... I think on live radio also, boy, did you hear Garrison's trumpification of uh, Edgar Allan Poe's The Raven? And I watched this ugly fowl sit and stare at me and scowl, and he hissed at me, the country's in a very serious slump, and you cannot help agreeing that America is seeing no ordinary being who can lift us from the dump, no ordinary candidate campaigning on the stump except one named Donald Trump. So I actually sort of reject that the show doesn't have edge. You know, there will 
be things that happen on on the new Prairie Home Companion that probably strike some in the audience as being fairly radical choices, although, uh, again, we're not going to be courting controversy. Um, I don't think uh, – so we're not going to be looking to add edge to the program, nor are we going to be looking to um, to soften all the edges. Thanks so much for being with us. <laughs> Thank you, Ryan. It's a pleasure to be on the show. Musician Chris Thiele is the new host of A Prairie Home Companion. He takes over next month. And one of his first guests will be a Colorado band, Nathaniel Rateliff and the Night Sweats. And Thiele will be in Denver in November to broadcast a show from the Ellie Calkins Opera House. Oh, hear that old piano from down the avenue. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Russian-American author Vladimir Nabokov once wrote, Some part of me must have been born in Colorado. Nabokov visited the Rockies annually in the 1950s, and according to writer Landon Jones, those excursions shaped his novel Lolita, which remains controversial some 60 years later. Jones wrote a piece about Nabokov's travels for the New York Times earlier this year. Welcome to the program. Thank you very much, Ryan. What was it about Colorado that seemed to resonate so much with Nabokov? Well, it certainly did, and it reminded him of his childhood in, in Russia. He lived in an estate that was in the mountains or on the slopes of the mountains. It was a terrain, a landscape very similar to Colorado's. And also he would travel in the Crimean a peninsula, I guess. And likewise, Colorado reminded him of that, too. So he was very sentimental about it. He started off visiting Colorado as he traveled around the West, going to places like Telluride and, and uh, Estes Park. And he incorporated Colorado into the ending, in particular, of Lolita. This is the novel about the illicit relationship between an older man and a much younger girl. Um, Here's a reading uh, from the final pages from actor Jeremy Irons. I grew aware of a melodious unity of sounds rising like vapor from a small mining town that lay at my feet in a fold of the valley. One could make out the geometry of the streets between blocks of red and gray roofs and green puffs of trees, and a serpentine stream, and the rich ore-like glitter of the city dump, and beyond the town, roads crisscrossing the crazy quilt of dark and pale fields, and behind it all, great timbered mountains. Were there other connections between Nabokov and Colorado that uh, you could tell us about? Well, the, the one you just, where that was Jeremy Irons reading, um, it's really a beautiful connection. That was in Telluride, and Nabokov had the exact experience that he just put word for word into Lolita. He, you know, he went to Colorado to look for butterflies. Huh. I mean, it, he would go up to 12,000 feet in Telluride and chase butterflies. <laughs> um, in 1951, he caught the, the most prized butterfly. He, he identified a brand-new butterfly species, a female of a species, and no one had ever done that before. He's very proud of that. And... He described uh, Telluride as being an old-fashioned, absolutely touristless, believe it or not, mining town full of the most helpful, charming people. 
So Nabokov and his wife Vera drove more than 150,000 miles on their excursions through the West. And Important it, to say that Vera did all the driving. <laughs> Vera did the driving, all right. And I suppose... Yeah, she, he, he did not even have a driver's license. She did the driving, and she carried a pistol with her in case they were encountered rattlesnakes. Okay. And they did. And I suppose it was Vladimir's job to look for butterflies. Um, yeah, so he could focus. His wife, Vera, really lies behind Nabokov's success because she, she was his enabler. She was his driver. She did everything. She organized his lectures. I think she typed Lolita. And Lolita was quite, as you say, quite scandalous at the time. And he considered publishing under a, a pseudonym, which he did not do in the end. Mm. But he tried to burn the manuscript of Lolita a couple of times, and it was Vera who went and rescued it from the flames. Vera, who knew that it was an important piece of literature, and uh, it certainly came to be. You say in some ways these excursions make him more American than writers like Jack Kerouac, um, who wrote, of course, On the Road. Gosh, that's a bold statement to make, isn't it? Uh, it, I think it's defensible that no American writer saw more of the landscape in America than did this Russian, Vladimir Nabokov, because he just covered so many miles. And he, he was not an elitist about it. He went to the Tiki Tac motels, to the diners, and he knew the American landscape and the, and the kind of uh, brass, confident, you know, sometimes vulgar American roadside, the blue highways, before the interstate. He was, none of this was on interstates before that in, in, the, uh, in the late 40s and early 50s. I wonder if you've traced any of his footsteps or automobile treads, I suppose, and seen the West in in Nabokov's eyes. I have done a good bit of it, and I did it a lot of it last summer, and I did a lot of it uh, a little north of Colorado in, in Wyoming. He went to Utah, Colorado, Wyoming, and once at least to Oregon. And I went to and stayed in some of the same motels that he had, he had stayed in, uh, particularly one in a town called Afton, Colorado, and then also a town which I now know is pronounced Dubois. Dubois. Uh, I'm sorry, Wyoming. Dubois, Wyoming. All right. Did he know that Lolita would be the third rail that it turned out to be in so many ways? Uh, the third rail meaning deadly? or uh, Well, or yeah, just, uh, you know, I suppose electrifying and yeah. and controversial. Yeah, I, I think he anticipated that, and it started off. It, it was uh, it was published originally in, in France and then in England, and in England it was denounced as pornography. But then the writer Graham Greene kind of came to the rescue of uh, Lolita and saved it. It's a, a beautifully, beautifully written, very complex book with multiple layers. I mean, it's about this this fellow Humbert Humbert who has kidnapped a little girl. But the writing is, is uh, sort of breathtakingly elegant, and, and, and the descriptions are amazing. And so it just, it just puts you in, in a car with this crazy guy, and you, you, you start to buy it. Uh, I did the article because I, I've driven out from my home in New Jersey to the Rocky Mountains every single year and back for 15 years because we have a dog, and we don't want to, the dog to fly on an airplane. <laughs> And so we drive the dog, and I used to always joke that I felt like Humbert Humbert with Rolita, but instead of having a, uh, a nymphette, as he called them, I had a wife and a dog. Uh, but then I found out that I more or less had done what not only what Humbert Humbert had done in Lolita, but I also, that Nabokov had done the same exact thing. 
So it's really about three journeys, uh, Humbert and Lolita, Nabokov and Vera, and, and me and my wife, Sarah, and my dog, Mac. Well, you say that you've been surprised by the reception the articles received. It's been one of the top emailed articles on the Times website. Yeah. Why do you think that is? Um, well, for one thing, it had beautiful photographs. And, and I give the photographer, Jeannie Osborne, a lot of credit for that. But there's a hunger for information about him. There's a new book published about Nabokov every single year, at least one. And so there just remains a lot of fascination, and it's, it's almost as if he's coming back into, into vogue again. I mean, that Lolita sales are way up now, and the, the novel itself. And then, of course, he wrote many other great books and a great memoir called Speak Memory. Fascinating. Thanks so much for being with us. Oh, I must enjoy it. Landon Jones wrote On the Trail of Nabokov in the American West for the New York Times. We spoke earlier this year. That's Colorado Matters for today. We're on Twitter at Colorado Matters and on Facebook, CPR News. Thanks for spending time with us. I'm Ryan Warner at Colorado Public Radio.